Praise God. Let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to Luke chapter 12. If you're following us uh, on television with this, you certainly want to go in the Gospels with us to Luke chapter 12 and not take for granted anything that a minister is going to teach or to say, but to look right at it. We're going to look at this parable uh, starting with verse 13. Now, last week I didn't make it here, but I was doing some teaching out of Ecclesiastes on wisdom and wealth and looking at a man by the name of Solomon who in his elderly years looked back on his life and began to realize that without God, everything's vain. Life is vanity without God. So in, in Luke 12, I'm going to read verses 13 through 21. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. He said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? He said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. He spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee, then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So this is the parable of the, the rich fool. Let's, let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Father, again, we are happy to be able to fellowship with the saints. It's always a wonderful time when believers gather together around your wonderful son. We pray, Lord, tonight that the spirit of the Lord would be here in the midst Give us clarity as we share this teaching. Give them ears to hear what thus saith the word. And then, Father, let us leave here different than how we came in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. You know, I've, I've had conversations with people before, and they have questions about Scripture, or they have questions about whether or not we should believe in God, what's right, what's wrong, those kinds of things. The, the average person who disbelieves in God, they're, they're skeptics that, that believe in something that goes way back to ancient times. The ancient Greeks had this idea, some of the ancient Greeks had this idea, that truth is not comprehensible. So they were called the ancient Greek skeptics. And their belief was that if anyone makes a statement of fact, then someone should marshal arguments against it to demonstrate that truth is not comprehensible. And you see that very often with the way people are taught to listen critically and to examine things. Uh, that, that Certainly they teach that in universities and in colleges. But when you talk to people about God and they 
start asking questions and they want to know, is there a God? Is there not a God? Is Christianity real? What makes Christianity better than other religions? When I'm talking to someone, I usually, at first, I want to know, are they a Christian? Because if they're not a Christian, then I already understand that we have worldviews that are not reconcilable. We have an outlook on life, perspectives on life that cannot be united simply because we view people, we view things, we view sin, we view salvation differently. However, if I am dealing with a Christian, then I've got to start asking a couple of questions. If someone is questioning whether or not the resurrection is true, whether or not the Bible is you know, the inspired word of God and so on. Then as a Christian, then I, a question I, I want to know is, uh, what degree of authority do you believe you should give to the Bible in your own individual life? That's a question. What degree of authority do you believe you should give to the Bible in your, your life? And then that leads to the second question, which is, what degree of authority do you give to the Bible in your life? Because it's possible to know what you're obliged to do or obligated to do and still not do it. So the person who says they're a Christian and they say Jesus Christ is their Lord and their master, then I'm going to believe that if, if it's true that Jesus has saved you from your sin and he's changed your life entirely, then you're going to take this book to be the, the, the great book of authority in your life and you're going to govern your lifestyle by what the book says, even if the book is contradicted by culture and governmental people, and politics, policies. So we have a story like this, and I think this has everything to do with who's the main authority in a person's life. We don't know anything about this man that was rich, but called a fool. We do know that he had been in the crowd of people listening to Jesus teach. Jesus, in the preceding verses, had already told them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, because of their hypocrisy. He told them that God was big enough to care for them. God was big enough to love them and look after them. And then he told them, you don't even have to worry about what you're going to say when you're in a challenging situation. The Spirit of God will put the words in your mouth so that you can utter forth words of wisdom. And somewhere along the line, this gentleman, he thought to himself, okay, I've got a problem. My problem is related to inheritance. This man seemingly is going to be my solution, so I'm going to go to him. And he went to Jesus, and he said, Master, speak to my brother, because he won't divide me the inheritance, or tell him to divide with me the inheritance. So there's the issue. The issue is the inheritance. And he says, speak to my brother, because he believes his brother is the problem. Now, Jesus doesn't know, or should, I should say it this way, it's not related in this in this particular passage, what the issues were that prevented the brother from dividing it with this sibling. But you can see he wanted to use Jesus to fix his brother because he saw the problem stood directly with, with him. Now, I, I will tell you this, uh, just as, as a little extra information, being a pastor and doing this for a lot of years and having to get involved with Families, when people pass away, it, it, it's amazing what a little bit of dirt and brick and mortar will bring out of siblings and family members when someone passes away. Especially when there's a lot of dirt and there's a lot of brick and mortar, 
that has to be divided amongst family members. I, I recall preaching a meeting, and I don't know if I, I may have told you this, but I can't remember. But I was preaching a meeting one time, and it was a Sunday morning meeting, and I was preaching on the cross. And so after I was done, there was someone that gave uh, an invitation for someone to come to Christ. So it was a re- really strong invitation, and they were pleading with people, and they kind of knew that there was somebody there that wasn't a Christian. And so the organ was playing, the piano was playing, I was sitting on the side, the other people were in the pulpit, and, and it was a real solemn meeting, and nobody got up and came, came down. But it was obvious, by the way God was at work, there was somebody who was supposed to come down. So the next morning, I got on the plane, flew back, back to Nebraska, and uh, then sometime toward the evening, uh, my friend, he called me, he's the pastor, he said, he said Brother Darrell, just want to tell you that the, the one that, that God was dealing with, that should have came down and responded to that altar call, who did not come down? He was an unbeliever, said, I knew exactly who he was, but I never went and said anything to him. He said, uh, I just got word, I've got to go to his house. He, he committed suicide. And he said, the bad thing about it is, he said he had a lot of pistols and rifles there in his house. And he said, I just got the phone call. And they said, Pastor, would you come over here? Because his two sons are out in the front yard and they're in fisticuffs fighting over the guns. It's amazing how blood kin can just fall apart over property. This man says to Jesus, speak to my brother. See, it's my brother who's the problem. That's usually how we are. We think the problem lies with someone else. If we hear a good teaching or a good message in church, you know, we sit there and we're thinking to ourselves, you know, so-and-so need to be here to hear this one. See, yeah, Speak, speak to my brother. Don't talk to me, but speak to my brother. So verse 14, Jesus asks a question. He says, now, who is it that appointed me to stand over you as the administrator over your estate? as the executor of this will, or as an arbitrator. And he said here, I'm, I'm not the one to do that. However, it's not that Jesus could not be a judge. He was righteous. He was perfect. He knew right from wrong. He he knew what was accurate, inaccurate. He was God in the flesh. There's no difficulty there. So he's not saying that he could not judge the situation. He's just saying from the legal standpoint, from, from the aspect of court proceedings, from the Levitical standpoint, who appointed me to be the one to divide up your real estate and your monetary things? And uh, rather than work on dividing up the inheritance, he starts offering a few words of caution. He said, watch yourself and beware of covetousness. Now, that's an interesting word, covetousness, because that's one of the Ten Commandments. Remember, the the man came to Jesus, and he said, Lord, uh, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord said, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, all of these things. And the man said, I've been doing that since I was a kid. And the Lord said, okay, then go and sell what you have and then come, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And it says the man, the young man, he walked away sorrowfully because he had many possessions. So that is to say that with all of the possessions that he had, they were so great in his life that he could not follow God as God wanted him to. See, the problem isn't the wealth. 
The problem was the character of the individual that, that had it. Having possessions is not a bad thing. It's when your possessions have you. That's the bad thing. Because when, when, when you did not have a whole lot and you went to sleep at night, you know, if, if you were thinking about anything, you might have been thinking about what you don't have and thinking about having food and thinking about a few items of clothing that you might need, things you want to provide. But, but then when the multitudes of the possessions continue to multiply, then pretty soon you're laying awake at night dreaming of ways to hold on to what you have. You see, how can I keep this? And Jesus says, beware of covetousness. And that's, that's the trap. To begin coveting. And we see that in scripture. Typically we covet something that we believe we need. Or we covet something that we are attracted to. Remember the story of Adam and Eve. God said to Adam and Eve. Okay here's a tree. This tree belongs to me. Don't touch this tree. But then you have all these other trees. You can have this tree. You can eat from this tree. But leave this tree alone. This tree is mine. So if you've got several thousand trees out there in the Garden of Eden, God had to do something to that one tree to make that one tree look different than all the other trees. Otherwise, they'd have walked away two or three miles and came back, couldn't figure out which tree was the one that God said don't eat from. But but a serpent came, and this is how it happens. The, the, the devil comes and says to Eve, if, if you eat of the fruit of that tree, you won't die, will you? She said, well, God said I'll die. He said, I'm telling you, you won't die. You're going to get smarter. Smarter? Oh, is that right? Uh -uh. You even look like God. You'll be in the image of God. You'll be just like God. Oh, I'll be godlier if I do this. If I disobey God, I'll be godlier. Tell me you don't hear that today. If I transgress the commandment of God, I'll be godlier. And so, sure enough, she she went over there and she grabbed the fruit and she bit down into it and and it was it was good. Now before she grabbed it, the scripture says she looked at it and saw that it was something to be desired. That's where it began with the attraction. And then she shoved it right into Adam's mouth because he was following right behind her, and and they both ended up in, in in trouble because they were coveting something they they were not supposed to have in the first place. So the First sin goes back to coveting. And here's what the Lord says. Beware of covetousness. Because if there's something you're not supposed to have, it doesn't belong to you. And if you're, if you're, you're lusting after or desiring something that you're not supposed to have, pretty soon you're going to be able, you're going to start dreaming up ways in order for you to obtain it. By the time you realize that, that you're in trouble, it's a bit late. So Jesus offers this one principle that we should all live by. Man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. Now that principle runs contrary to our culture here in America, certainly. Because our culture is about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, the American dream, obtaining things, creating products that other people have never created before, and, and, and having a product that people will need, and amassing wealth, none of which Scripture ever says is wrong. However, when your life is bundled up in what you have, like Job's wife was, that's where the trouble is. The scripture says in Job chapter 1, he was... 
you know, a very wealthy man in the East. But you know what happened? He lost all of that. He lost his family. And when all of it was gone, his wife said to him, how in the world can you still maintain faith in God when we've lost our kids and we've lost our cattle, we've lost our property, and you're trying to tell me that God is a good God and God is a wonderful God? Why don't you curse your God and just fall over dead? How'd you like to be married to that? <laughs> oh, oh my. Happy anniversary, honey. <laughs> See, I'd like to be married to somebody like that. Well, her, her life consisted of what she possessed, but I guarantee you, if you would have asked her six months before she lost everything, if, if her life was bundled up in her possession, she would have said no. Because most of us, we don't really know what we are, are like and what our character is like until we start losing things that we value very much. That's when you really feel like you, you realize what kind of character you have. Man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. But the little kid in school wants the same kind of name brand pants and shoes as everybody else because he or she doesn't want to be teased. See? Parents want the, the young people to have the same technological gadgets and $100 games that they can play on the screen because all the other ones. And, and, and parents, sometimes they, they don't want their son to be without a car because if he doesn't have a car and he has to walk to school, he's going to be left out. And we indirectly teach people sometimes that what you have and what you possess actually gives value to who you are. And Jesus is trying to teach something totally contrary to that. This is about character here. Did I ever tell you about the time my dad bought me a car? Yeah. My, my dad, and see, I graduated high school in 1987, so this would have been 85, maybe 86. My dad had bought my two older brothers several vehicles. But by the time he got to me, he was a lot more restrained in his behavior. So he said to me, he said, I'm going to buy you one car. One car, son, one car. I said, Dad, that'll be fine. That's all I'll need. So he, in, in about 85, 86 or so, he bought me this, this beautiful 1979 candy apple red sunbird. It was beautiful. He took me over there and let me see it. I said, oh, my, this is going to be wonderful. I can't wait for him to deliver that to, to the house. And so on the day he was supposed to bring it, I was sitting there, and, and it was in the parking lot uh, over at this apartment building. And so he was supposed to bring it to me, and, he, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. And then I called. I said, well, Dad, what, what's, what's going on? He said, son, I got bad news for you. He said, I was pulling out of the parking lot, and just as I pulled out of the parking lot, I didn't see this 18-wheeler coming, and it came and just rolled right on top of the sunbird and just totaled the whole car. I, I said, well, uh, well, what, what kind of a car are, are you, you going to get me then? He, he said, listen, son, I told you I'm buying you one car. One car, and, and the next car I got, I bought myself. Yeah, right, right through high school, just working at a country club, caddying at the on the golf course. Bought, bought my own car. But, but, but here's the thing. I learned then from having to buy it myself something that a lot of my friends didn't understand. 
who had everything given to them. Some people honestly believe that when it comes to possessions, the more of them they have, the more value they have in their life. But your esteem should not be based upon what you have or don't have. It doesn't bother God at all whether or not you have a very nice house or whether you don't have such a nice house. But what God is interested in is your character. And this man comes to Jesus because he has a disagreement with his brother. He wants Jesus to fix his brother. And this is why Jesus now has to say to him, because he sees what's going on on the inside of him. And he says, rather than me talking to your brother, I'm going to talk to the crowd and I'm going to talk to you. And he said, let me tell you a story. It's a parable. Now, parables in ancient times were given in order to either emphasize one particular truth or several truths. And in the Middle East, these things are very popular. The, the, the Syriac-speaking family that I lived with 24 years ago in Jordan, they spoke Arabic in public, Syriac at home. And when I was there in Arabic college, learning Arabic, I was living with this family, so I was learning two languages at one time, doing Syriac at home, Arabic at school. And this, this father, he would always gather his children at night and tell them stories in Syriac. And one story that he always told was about two brothers. And it was a story about greed and covetousness. And, and in the story, it basically says there are two brothers. Each one of them owned one half of the earth. And he said every year on the appointed date, they, they would get together at their boundary lines there. And then they would just kind of get together and talk and, and all of these things. But one time they got together and then one of the brothers noticed that the other brother got there just a little bit early and moved the boundary line about six inches. And so the two brothers got into a fight to the point that the one brother murdered his brother. So he was left with everything. And the whole point of the story is to teach Young people, that you could end up with more than you previously had, but if you have to hurt people in order to get it, then it's really not worth it after all. You know, it's kind of like the, the story where Jesus says, what, do, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and then lose his own soul? So Jesus tells a story like that. He says, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. Then the man thought within himself, what am I going to do? And I have no room where to bestow my fruits. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with the man being rich. And there's nothing wrong with the ground. The ground was fruitful. The issue was the man began to think about what can I do with this produce? How can I use it in a, in a positive way? And, and, and what can I do to benefit myself? Now, you would read this story, and just like I have read this story before, and you would think, okay, this man is simply trying to improve his farm operation. What's wrong with that? I mean, who hasn't done that before? Who hasn't gone out of their way to, to put up bigger grain bins, bigger barns to store their hay or whatever? So we would say, what, what's wrong with this? The issue is that in verse 19, he says to his soul, you have many goods laid up for many years, so just sit back and rest. And the Lord is letting him know, you're very interested in natural resources, but you're not interested in your soul. See, all of your property is going to exchange hands. It's going to have a new owner. But your soul belongs entirely, eternally, to the king. To the king. 
Now, now think about it. The, the home that you live in right now, unless you built it, there's somebody else that lived in that house. And I guarantee you, there are people that have been in these towns around here long enough where they can tell you who lived in your house before you were there and who lived in your house before that family was there. And, and, and there's, oh, where do you live at? Oh, I live, uh, you know, go two blocks north, then turn east, then the fourth house on the left. Oh, you, you mean you, you, you're in the old Paderewski house? Yeah. Yeah, I remember when... I remember when his grandparents first came came to town. But everything changes hands. So the, the scripture in verse 19 says, Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God spoke to him and said, You fool, this night your soul is required. Now in Greek, the word that we know for fool is a person who doesn't think. That, that's what that is, a person who doesn't think. A parable is a narrative that is given to instruct, to cause people to ponder, to contemplate, to think. I mean, television used to be that way at one point. It was very instructive. If, if, if some of you can remember the Loretta Young show, she, at the end of her show, she'd come on with a nice little proverb or witty saying at the end, but but each episode always taught a moral lesson. Or maybe you can remember, leave it to Beaver. There was always some, some teaching out of that. Andy Griffin, there was a teaching. Even in later years, the Cosby Show, some kind of a teaching in the episode. However, if you watch modern programming, the entertainment is designed to amuse you. Not to make you think, but to amuse you. Now, we use the word muse to think. You put the, the I prefix on it, that means to not think. So you're supposed to just sit there now and just laugh and find it funny, but you're not supposed to think about what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, what's sacred, what's profane, what's holy, what's wicked. It's amusing. You see. God said to this man who's a fool, this night your soul will be required of. Remember Psalm 14.1? The fool had said in his heart, there is no God. You ever talk to somebody who told you they didn't believe in God? And if you were to say to them that that was foolish, they wouldn't like that. If you were more direct and said you were a fool, then they would say you're judging them. But they would not even realize that scripture already judges that disbelief as foolish. John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But then John 3.18, the one who does not believe is condemned already. People you talk to about God, and they say they don't believe in God, they refuse to believe in God, they have no idea that, you know, we can say Damocles' sword is, is, is hanging over their heads with every step that they take. They're already condemned. If you tell them they're condemned, they'll be even angrier. But it doesn't change their condition. It is what it is. Our role is to explain what redemption has accomplished, what reconciliation can be achieved by believing in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us so that in our place he stood condemned, receiving the judgment and penalty that 
duly should have come to us, deservedly should have come to us, but he received it fully in his life so that faith in him leaves us to say we've been acquitted of everything. We're innocent. Justified. Not this man. The Lord said this night, there's a reckoning. Then who are your belongings going to go to? So when you think about what you have and I think about what I have, have we given considerable thought to the fact that one day it will be in someone else's hand? Someone's going to have it. Believe me when I tell you. And so it says, um, whose things shall those things be which you have provided? And then here's the clincher. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the whole point of this parable was to impugn this man's motives. Lord, speak to my brother. Jesus being God, he saw deeper into this man's heart. He saw what the issue is. It's covetousness. That's why he told this parable. Jesus never utters words frivolously. Every word he speaks is on target and on point. He saw exactly what it was. You're a man focused so on the natural that you haven't even given thought to your soul. That thing belongs to God. So, so important for you to lay up treasures toward God, to be rich toward God. What can I do to, to gain in wealth with God? The Bible says, he that, lendeth, he that giveth to the poor lendeth to God. Think about that. If you want God, somewhat figuratively speaking, indebted to you, bless the poor. Yeah. All the money through the years we've raised for them folks in Kenya and them poor preachers over there, he that giveth to the poor lendeth to the Lord. Yeah. Now, now we use the word poor here in America in a way that's different than the kind of poverty that I run into when I'm traveling abroad overseas because a person here in America, they'll be homeless and, and, and they'll have a sign that says we'll work for food and then they'll have a cell phone. And two dogs follow them behind them. Yeah. Uh, a, a family in, in America and out here in the heartland, they, they'll say, we're, we're having a, a struggle paying our bills. Church, could you please help, help us pay our bills? And then they, they've, got, they've got cable television. They've got a satellite on the, on the side of the house. They've got two cell phones. And they say, we, we can't pay our bills because we don't know the difference between our wants and our needs. And we try to push off on other people our wants so they'll pay for those. And then we can still have, have our needs. But we're not even thinking about the spiritual aspect. And these aren't just sinners. Some of these people are Christians that do this. This man says, if you're not rich toward God, that's not a good thing. And, and I assume everybody in here wants to be rich toward God. I mean, otherwise, why would we want to serve God? What would be the point of having a Bible, living a disciplined life, taking up the cross every day, crucifying flesh, dying out to self, renewing our minds with the word of God, trying to crucify our tongue, our speech, our attitude, and all of that? What's the point of that if we don't have a desire to be rich toward God? But, but Jesus is trying to explain to this man as he's teaching us through this, uh, through this book, don't don't allow what you possess to hold you and possess you. 
few more verses here. So he says in verse 22, he says, so I'm going to say to you, don't take any thought for your life, what you're going to eat, uh, neither for your body, what you're going to put on, for the life is more than meat or a meal, and the body is more than raiment, clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have store, storehouse nor barn. God feeds them. How much more are you better than the fowls? Now, that's something. I mean, a lot of people don't really contemplate the the uh, animal world too often, but I thought about doing a series just out of Proverbs, just on things that the Bible talks about, insects, things you can learn from insects and from the, the animal kingdom. But think about the blackbirds and the ravens. The, the Lord says... They don't know how to drive a combine. Okay? They, they don't know anything about planting. But God takes care of them. Now, I've seen birds out here pick up acorns, drop them on the highway, wait for a car to drive over the acorn, and then land on the highway and start eating the acorn. Tell me they're not smart. Okay? Yeah, this, 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 this stuff is real. And, and the Lord says, if, if the, the birds of the air and the fowls are cared for like that, don't you believe I care for you even more? Then verse 25, he says, which of you can add stature to your height by thinking about it? He said, if you're not able to do that which is least, why are you taking thought for the rest? Consider the lilies. They don't grow, they, I mean, how they grow. They don't toil. They don't spin. Yet Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Have you ever looked at the beauty of the the, the color of a white rose or a pink rose? You you get somebody who is as gifted as as Picasso or Michelangelo. They can mix a hundred colors and they still can't come up with something as beautiful as something in the petal of a flower. And God said, if I can take care of all of that. Don't you think that I surely can take care of you? I mean, everybody's excited right now because of, you know, the, how the, the Dow just keeps doing this here. I'm telling you, that thing is just going higher and higher, and folks are excited. And I mean, you know, for, for, for you folks that have millions invested in Wall Street like John down here, I'm telling you, you're just really excited as that thing is just going up there. But, but there's never been a bird... There's never been a raven yet that stood on the branch of any tree, and when the Dow dropped 4,000 points or 400 points, it just fell apart and committed suicide and fell off the branch. They don't think about that. So God says, in your own life as a believer, trust me. I can care for you. I can look after you. That's what he's saying. If God, verse 28 if he so clothed the grass, which is today in the field and tomorrow cast into the oven, because sometimes people did heat the oven with the grass in order to cook, and bake their foods. He says, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? So seek not, seek not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of a doubtful mind, for all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your father knows that you have need of these things. But rather, here's the key, seek ye the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. 
That is the objective. How different would your life be right now if you'd known this when you were 19? How different has our life been since we had, since we have known this since we were 19? These principles. Well, I think if anybody learns about God's ability to care for us, and at the same time, our ability to have character when we're having possessions, then we'll see that God will multiply us even more because he wants us to be good stewards over the little that we have, but we also need to be good stewards over much when he permits us to have that. Yes. When God has you in charge of one person, yourself, be diligent about how you handle yourself and then when God puts you in charge of five people then be diligent about how you handle those five and then when God puts you in charge of 50 then be dutiful in your handling of those because to whom much is given much is required so important to know that there was a man years ago in Cleveland Ohio where I was raised this might have been a oh we'll say 160 years ago or so a man named Henry Henry Parsons was born. His dad was a businessman. And he died at an early age of 36 with tuberculosis. And, and he left his son pretty big fortune. But he was the father was very faithful in church. And, and he had a policy that had this belief that, that his pastor, he, he always had his pastor sit down and talk to his children about tithing and offerings and finances. And so when he died, then quite naturally, the, the son, who even though he was a little boy, he had heard a lot of sermons from uh, the preacher, and he knew exactly how he was supposed to conduct himself when it came to all of this money he was going to come into. And he got older and got older, and he himself, at the age of 16 or so, ended up with tuberculosis. So the doctor said to him, you need to go west where the climate's a little bit better for you, and maybe that'll, that'll heal you up. So he did. He went out to Idaho, Wyoming, and places like that. When he got a clean bill of health, he bought a farm in Iowa. And then pretty soon, because <clears throat> of planting and harvesting, he did well on that. And then he had enough money where he bought some land in South Dakota. Well, his uncle back in Ohio had wired him and told him, rather than putting that ground to corn or wheat or something like that, he said, why don't you raise some horses out there in South Dakota? So sure enough, that's what he did. But, and so he, he, he bought a bunch of horses, and they were shipping them out there by rail to South Dakota. But he had the great idea. Rather than just ship the horses out there, I'll put on the sides of the, of the boxcars the name of our operation, and then everybody know we're selling horses. So it had to go through three states. And by the time the horses got there, he already had a multitude of people that wanted to buy horses from him. And then finally he sold that operation, millions of dollars. So somebody says to him, have you ever heard of uh, these millers that are involved with creating oats that horses eat and everything like that? And he said, yeah. He said, you ever thought about getting involved with that? He said, well, no, not really. Well, I mean, at that time, we're talking 1880s, 1890s, a lot of families, farmers, agricultural families, they were eating a lot of beef, even for breakfast. So this man got it in his head 
that we could put oats out here and the average American family would be able to, to have these. And at the time, you know, they oats would be in a, a barrel or a sack. But the problem was they then would, you know, you, you find all kind of ants and, uh, I want to say rot and other kind of corrosion in there. So he had the idea, let's put it, put it in a cardboard box and put it up on the shelves in the grocery stores so that everybody can have it. And he had this big marketing campaign that he put forward and he put himself on the, on the front of the box. And then pretty soon moms and dads across America were buying Quaker oats. But nobody knew that this man who was worth millions that from the time he was little right on up to the time that he passed away in his eighties, he was dedicated faithful man in the church gave millions of dollars to support Moody Bible Institute and to support missions all around the world. He and his wife started a, started a trust and they gave to over a hundred different organizations involved with missions around the world simply because they understood that he that gives to the poor lends to the Lord. Fruitful ground has never been a problem. Money has never been a problem. Real estate and wealth has never been the problem. The problem has always been a man or woman's character, their heart. It's not how much, how little a person has. It's what they do with what they have. And the person who refuses to put God first is a person that's not seeking the kingdom of God. The man or woman not seeking the kingdom of God is not going to find the blessing of God to be there like they need it to be there. They will be like this man who comes to the end of his days quickly and hears the Lord says to him, Thou fool, this night your soul shall be required. So I tell people all the time, you know, we're all expecting the king to come. We don't know when he's going to come. He may not come Tonight, he may, he may not come for his church tonight, but he may call for you later in the evening. But if he calls for you or he calls for me, would he call us a fool? Or would he be able to say we've been faithful and we are faithful? These are things to think about when we consider what it is that God wants to do in your life and in my life. And when we think about what it is to live for God and the things that we have, the resources that we have. Father, how can I be faithful with what I have and glorify you? How can I have what I have, be humble about what I have, have a repentant spirit concerning what I have, but at the same time, Lord, how can I push your kingdom? That's important. Always important to think about. Okay, praise the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful this evening that we could look into this parable and study some of these lessons because we are well aware of the fact that you have blessed each of us in here tonight. And when we depart from this place and go home, we are still going to be very, very happy about how you have given into our bosom more blessings than we could ever count. But Father, we can always do better. And so, Lord, help us to not be like the man who is constantly thinking about building bigger, building greater, without building bigger and building greater for you. Help us to be the kind of people that will think about your kingdom. Think about what your son did for us because of your sacrifice and giving Christ to die for us at Calvary. Father, next time we come out here, we'll be learning more and more again. 
These things we're grateful for in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus. And everyone said, Amen, Amen. Isn't that a good